Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Cedar Home. My name is Dan Halleck. If I don't know you, I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm so thankful you have gathered with us today to worship the Lord uh, through singing and through giving and through the preaching of God's Word and through praying together, and a happy Mother's Day out there uh, also. Um, my guess is that most of you are getting a little bit tired of this whole quarantine lifestyle by this point in time. I know that, that some of you are very isolated right now. Some of you are very bored and alone right now. Uh, for others of you, life is more chaotic. Uh, you are more busy than ever before. Maybe your job responsibilities have changed at work. Maybe you have more on your plate now than you ever did before this time. Maybe you are uh, homeschooling your kids now and you have you're finding that you have a hard time figuring out all this new technology, you know, trying to figure out how to communicate with your class and with your teachers and how to submit all these assignments. Join the club. We're in the same boat with you. For me personally, I, I felt especially weary this week at different times. And I think a big part of that was I felt this week the world pulling me and my mind in a lot of different directions. I just felt being pulled a lot. There, there are so many news stories. There are so many issues right now. There are so many voices fighting for our attention and, and it gets exhausting. The world is constantly yelling at us to look at different things, to look at different things. Now look at the new forecast numbers for COVID-19. Look at how many people are projected to get sick. Look at how many people are projected to die. No, don't trust those numbers. You need to look at these numbers instead. Look, look at these numbers. These are the real numbers. Look at how corrupt that politician is. You can't trust him. No, no, no. You need to look at how corrupt that politician is. You can't trust him or her. Look at, look at those people not wearing masks. Or look at those people, they're wearing masks. Look at this petition. Look at this petition. Look at this petition. <laughs> look at this video. Look at this press conference. Look at the murder hornets. Now it's not to say that some of those things are not important. Some of those things are, are really important. But how many times this week did you hear people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus high and lifted up and exalted in glory at the right hand of God. Look at how kind the Lord has been to us. Look at how awesome Jesus is that he is in control of all of this. That everything that is happening around us is in his hands. Look at, look at the fact that he's going to bring all of this together under his headship for the glory of God's name and for the joy of God's people. Look at Jesus. Did you hear that this week? This week, did you rest your heart in Jesus? Did you rest your soul in God's foreordained plan for your life? And for this world, 
2,000 years ago, Christians lived in turbulent times too. And in the middle of those storms, Paul prayed that God would enable those Christians to set their minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Paul prayed that God would give Christians power to know the hope of God that God has called them to. Paul prayed that God would give his people power to know the riches of God's inheritance in his people. Paul prayed that God would give his people power to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward them and at work in them. The same power that God the Father worked in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. Well, this morning, God is graciously giving us an opportunity to stop staring at the bewildering storm around us and to look at Jesus and to look at the power of Jesus and to look at the glory of Jesus and the love and kindness of Jesus, to remember the breathtaking things that God has done and to celebrate the awesome things that God is doing right now among us. That's what God is giving us this morning. And so if you have your Bible with you, we want scripture to be our guide as we do that. And we want to open up to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. And over the next three weeks, we're going to look closely at the first verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And this morning, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 5 in chapter 2. But we're going to start reading in chapter 1 at verse 15 in order to remember the context. So before we read this, let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity you have given us to open you and to look at your glory and to remember you and to celebrate you and the fact that you are in control and we trust you. And no matter what circumstances are happening in our lives right now, you are working them all together for the good of those you love. Thank you, Lord. We just ask that as we read this word, Holy Spirit, you would convict us. You would teach our minds, and that you would transform our hearts so that we would desire you more and desire to follow you, and that, Holy Spirit, you would give us great power to follow in your footsteps, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So let's just read this big chunk of Ephesians 1, verse 15, through chapter 2, verse 5, so that you can see how this all connects. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? 
And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. That's where we're going to stop today. I want you to see here, as we look at this passage, that chapter 2 is a continuation of what Paul was saying in chapter 1. And that's why he begins chapter 2, verse 1, with the word and. Right? You don't normally start a new thought with the word and. And is a word you use that's indicates that you're continuing to say something. And so he's continuing his thought from the previous sentence. And in the previous sentence, Paul just prayed that God would help Christians to know the immeasurable greatness of uh, his power toward those of us who believe. And Paul said that the power that God has worked toward Christians and the power that God is working inside Christians right now is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and exalted Jesus in heaven. And now in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul says that just as God's power physically raised Jesus from the dead, so also God's power spiritually raised Christians from the dead. Let me say that again. Just as God's power physically raised Jesus from the dead, so also God's power spiritually raised Christians from the dead. How, how awesome is that? That's, how awesome is the redeeming power of God, right? It's amazing. It's unparalleled. There's nothing like it. Now, before we begin talking about what it means that God made us alive, we really need to understand what it means that we used to be dead, that we were dead. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, God reveals to us through Paul just how spiritually dead we were before Christ and how dead the world is apart from Christ. Paul tells Christians, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. What a mind-blowing reality, right? Before Jesus, you were dead. Yet at the same time, the verse says, you were walking. 
And so you were dead and you were walking. And so for lack of a better term, you were a spiritual zombie. But before you were united to Christ through faith, you had biological life and you even had a spiritual existence. But you did not have God's eternal life, his zoe in the Greek, life in Christ. And the cause of your death and also the characteristic of your deadness was the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So that was the cause of your death and that was also the, the trademark of your walk. It was the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So what does that mean? Well, it means that your walk, Christian, used to be characterized by trespassing God's laws. Maybe you've uh, walked through the forest or walked on property and you've seen a sign nailed to a fence that said no trespassing. It means don't go beyond this point. Well, God has done the same thing for us. He's put up no trespassing signs. He's put up boundaries that he wants us to stay inside. But we willfully crossed the good boundaries that God set up for us. God told us, don't cross this line. Because if you cross this line, it's not glorifying to me and it is not good for you. And you and I willingly disobeyed God and we crossed the line. We crossed the boundaries over and over again. Before following Jesus, our walk was characterized by crossing the lines that God set in place for his glory and for our good. And similarly, before you follow Jesus, your walk was characterized by sin or sins. It says you willfully disobeyed God and you did not repent of that. You, you told God, I'm not following you, God. I, I don't like you. I don't like your rules. I, I want to live by my rules. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cross the boundaries. I'm going to disobey you, and I want to live by my rules. Christian, this used to be your trademark of how you lived, how you walked. You were an unrepentant trespasser and an unrepentant sinner, Ephesians 2, 1 says. And that you were unrepentant means that you felt no remorse for having trespassed against God. You felt no remorse for willfully violating his commandments. You may have even, you may have even uh, got a thrill out of it, knowing that you were sticking it to God. You, you, you never felt the weight of your sin. You never apologized to God because you didn't think there was anything you need to apologize for. You never begged to God to forgive you and to help you turn away from your old ways and to turn and follow him. I read a really good short book this year, which I highly recommend, by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. This is one of these books I've heard about for probably 15 years and had never gotten to. And then I was glad to see how short it was. And I finally got to it. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And one of the insightful things that Packer says is that feeling bad about things you've done and deciding that those things are not in your best interest if you keep doing those things, that, that is not the same thing 
as repentance that is God wrought uh, and uh, that is created and begotten of God and repentance that is God glorifying. See, God has, has graciously given everybody, whatever your spiritual beliefs are, he's, he's given everybody a conscience. And so even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, we knew that many of the sins we were doing were wrong. We, we may have even chosen to stop doing some of those wrong things, um, either for the sake of others or maybe just for selfish motives because it was hurting us. What we lacked, though, was a sense of sorrow for how we had rebelled against God when we were trespassing his boundaries. We were not remorseful for the ways that our sins offended him. And we did not ask God to help us follow in the footsteps of Jesus now. See, that's what repentance is. And repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is something God grants to people. And when we were dead, we did not have repentance. We were unrepentant toward God when we walked in our trespasses and in our sins. And so, Christians, when you were spiritually dead, your unrepentant trespasses and your unrepentant sins were the characteristic of how you walked. And also, they were the cause of your death. They were why you were a zombie. And that's why Paul says in the book of Romans, sin killed me. Sin killed me. The wages of sin are death. Physical death from which we are not spared and also everlasting death and torment from which we can be spared now through faith in Jesus because he died to put death to death for everybody who trusts in him. And now in verses 2 to 3, Paul describes what kept us walking in deadness. As we walked, we did not follow an unchartered course. We followed the course of this world, it says. And, and as we followed the course of this world, we did not follow nobody. We followed Satan, who's the prince of the power of the air. In the heavenly realms, Satan is the prince of evil. Satan's not the king, though. Jesus is the king. And Satan must submit to the king. And Jesus is king. And so, alongside all the sons of disobedience, we followed Satan. And we followed the evil passions of our flesh, these verses say. We did whatever our bodies and minds and feelings told us to do. They couldn't be wrong, right? That's how we thought. Just follow your heart. Your heart won't lead you astray. That is so not a biblical message. So in other words, before we followed Jesus, we unrepentantly followed the world. We unrepentantly followed the devil. And we unrepentantly followed our flesh. We followed the world because we were infatuated with everything the world offered us. The world promised to make us kings and queens. I mean, who doesn't want to be royalty, right? 
We, I, I can make lots of money. I could keep all that money for myself. I can build a little kingdom here on earth. I, I can use my money for the sake of my comfort, for the sake of my satisfaction, and for the sake of me. Before Christ, we were infatuated with all the sex that the world offered us. The world, the world told us, you guys, it's okay to trespass God's boundaries for sex. Nobody follows those boundaries anyway. You know, just look around. Look around at your friends and all the people your age. They're not following God's boundaries for that. Why should you have to? And so the world tempted us with sex before marriage. The world tempted us with sex outside of marriage. And before we knew Jesus, we pursued God dishonoring sex without repentance, without remorse and repentance toward God for how we had offended him. Before Christ, we wanted to be accepted by the world. You know, we, we just wanted everyone to like us. We wanted people to think we're cool. We just want to fit in. We, and so we became like the world in order to blend in with the world, in order to be accepted by the world. The world is the course we followed when we were walking in the deadness of our trespasses and sins. And, and as we followed the course of this world, it might surprise some of us to learn that we were not in fact charting our own course. We thought we were so independent, doing our own thing, being rebels. In fact, we were followers. We were following the footsteps of another. We were following the footsteps of the devil. The devil is a living being. He is invisible. He is a fallen angel. And he is a prince because he is the leader of all the fallen angels that we call demons. And the devil's time is running out right now. He knows that Jesus is returning to earth someday soon. And that when Jesus does that, he's going to cast the devil and his demons, all of them, into an eternal lake of fire. That's what the book of Revelation says. And so until Jesus returns, Satan wants to destroy the lives of people and he wants to destroy the work of God on earth and in heaven as much as he can. Satan does not want you to leave the course of the world. He wants you to stay right on track. He, he doesn't want you to follow Jesus. He doesn't want you to be saved by Jesus. He doesn't want you to obey Jesus. Satan wants you to stay an unrepentant sinner and trespasser. Satan does this too. He manipulates us by deceiving us, by lying to us, by accusing us, and by tempting us to do evil. And before we knew Christ, we believed him. We believed Satan. We believed his deceptions. We believed his false promises. We believed his accusations. We pursued his temptations. We unrepentantly followed him, even though, even though we may not have realized at the time that's exactly what we were doing. And not only were we following Satan and doing his works, but also, Satan was at work within us. That's what this passage says. Now, that's scary to think about. Look at the end of Ephesians 2, 2. 
Paul further describes Satan as the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, Paul's not necessarily describing demon possession here, but he's saying that the power of Satan is at work in everyone who does not know Jesus and who's in rebellion against him. Paul calls these people apart from Christ, they are the sons of disobedience because disobedience or disobeying God is what we do in our trespassing and in our sins. So think about this, Christians. We used to follow Satan. That's part of our story. That's part of your story. If you're a Christian, you used to be an unrepentant follower of Satan, is what these verses are saying. And were it not for Christ, we would have eventually followed Satan all the way to the lake of fire, according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. Because that's Satan's final destination. And in addition to following the course of this world, as we followed in the footsteps of Satan, alongside all the other sons of disobedience, we also followed the passions of our sinful flesh. That is, our bodies, which are hardwired to chase after whatever we have an appetite for. Our, our flesh does not want us to stop and think before acting. It does not want us to stop and think before speaking. Our flesh wants us to act first and maybe think later. Our flesh wants us to follow our impulses, to eat whatever looks good, to say whatever we think will make us feel good, to think about whatever our minds lead us to think about, to buy whatever we think we can't live without, to seek the acceptance of whoever we think we can't live without to use our bodies to fulfill whatever desire our bodies are telling us they want. Before Christ, we worshiped our bodies. We followed our flesh. We unrepentantly carried out the desires of our bodies and of our minds. So before we knew Christ, what forces kept us walking in the deadness of our trespasses and sins, according to these verses? The course of this world, our bondage to Satan, and the evil passions of our flesh. Now, some of you, as you hear this today, you might be thinking, this sounds crazy. This, this sounds foolish. You know, I've heard all this before. This is just primitive thinking. This is antiquated thinking. Uh, we know so much more today than those people who wrote the Bible 2,000 years ago. We don't even know if we got the Bible they wrote 2,000 years ago. This is all crazy talk. You know, a person can't be spiritually dead and biologically alive at the same time. We don't even know if we have spirits. Well, if you're thinking that way today, then you're certainly not alone. But I would encourage you to consider two things. First, I would encourage you to consider humbling yourself. I would encourage you to consider the possibility that maybe you don't have it all figured out and maybe your life points to that fact. 
maybe the words of scripture, which have endured for 2000 years and longer, <laughs> despite political oppression and wars and genocide and book burnings and religious persecution and burnings at the stake, maybe these words are true, even though they're ancient. Maybe with a humble spirit, you could actually be changed by these ancient truths that have spoken for thousands of years and which will outlive you and which will outlive your short life on earth. Second, I would encourage you to consider that maybe the reason you have difficulty believing that you are spiritually dead is because you are spiritually dead. Maybe the reason you don't feel a need to turn away from sin. Maybe the reason you don't feel the need to apologize to God. Maybe the reason you don't feel like you are spiritually dead is because you are spiritually dead. It's said that there was a man who came up to a preacher after his sermon to mock him. And the man said, you say that unsaved people carry a great weight of sin. Frankly, I feel nothing. <laughs> How heavy is sin? 10 pounds, 50 pounds, 80 pounds, 100 pounds? And the preacher thought for a moment and then he replied, if you laid a 400 pound weight on a corpse, would it feel the load? And the young man was quick to say, of course not, it's dead. And driving home his point, the preacher said, the person who doesn't know Christ is equally dead. And though the load is great, he feels none of it. The reason spiritually dead people don't feel the weight of their sin against God is because God has not granted them repentance yet. And even in our spiritual deadness, you know, we're not mere just victims to sin and to its bondage. We were pursuers of sin adamantly defending our reasons and rights to pursue sin. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. So how does Paul then summarize our spiritually dead condition in this passage? Look at the end of verse three. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So before Christ, we were not children of God. We were children of the wrath of God as we walked in our trespasses and in our sins. And we were not only children of wrath by our willing sinfulness. It says here, we were children of wrath by nature, by natures is what it says. So ever since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, every human child born has been naturally born as a child of wrath. What a terrible thing. What a terrible reality. That, that doesn't mean that the children sinned at birth. It means that they're born under the curse of humanity, which is the curse of being under God's wrath 
because of our corporate trespasses and our corporate unrepentant sins. In other words, you do not become a sinner when you sin. Rather, you sin, you trespass, because you're born a sinner and you're born a trespasser, along with every other child of wrath, every other son of disobedience. Now, it's crucial to see that nobody on earth is exempt from the wrath of God in their natural state. Nobody is exempt. At the beginning of verse 3, Paul says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And at the end of the verse, he says the same thing. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. <laughs> what he's saying here, you guys, this is rattling. It really is. He's saying that if we're not connected to Jesus, then we are under God's wrath. And this is what Jesus said in John 3. He said the exact same thing. Being a nice person doesn't save you from God's wrath. Being a moral person doesn't save you from God's wrath. Being a hard worker, being the employee of the month, it doesn't save you from the wrath of God. Giving your money to the poor doesn't save you from God's wrath. Feeling an inner sense of peace does not save you from God's wrath. Faithfully following every religious system that the world has created, it doesn't save you from God's wrath. Only Jesus Christ saves from God's wrath. You hear that? Only Jesus, who is God, can save you from His wrath. And here's why. He, Jesus, is the Son of God who came to earth and who already suffered God's eternal wrath in the place of every person who trusts in Him. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Why is He called the Lamb of God? Because He was slain for our trespasses and sins as he suffered God's wrath and absorbed every last drop of it for his people. Besides you, nobody but God himself can suffer your eternal, or God's eternal wrath toward you. It's either going to be you or you're going to trust in Jesus and accept what he did for you. You guys, there is, there is a world around us full of dead people out there walking around. Just like verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 says, they're dead and they're walking. And they think they're fully alive, but they're not. And they do not have the eternal life of Jesus. And Jesus has commanded us who are alive by God's grace to go to them. And to tell them, you don't have to remain under God's wrath. You don't have to keep walking as a dead person in your trespasses and sins. You don't have to follow the course of this world. You don't have to follow in the footsteps of Satan. You don't have to follow him to the lake of fire. Jesus, this is why you don't have to. Because Jesus paid it all. He paid it all for his people. Look to Jesus and trust in Jesus. Don't look at the world around you. It cannot save you. 
Look at Jesus resurrected from the dead in glory, high and exalted, awesome in power and might at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Worship Jesus because he transforms the eternities of men and women. He changes the course you're headed on. He puts you onto the course of eternal life. He, he changes who you are following. You'll no longer follow in the footsteps of Satan. You'll follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus changes the way you deal with the passions of your flesh. Instead of allowing the passions of, a flesh, of your flesh to kill you, now Jesus gives you the power to kill them. Through the perfect life, that Jesus lived in obedience to God's law and through Jesus' substitutionary death for sinners on the cross and through Jesus' awesome, victorious resurrection from the dead, Jesus alone accomplished everything necessary to redeem and eternally save from God's wrath. Praise God and praise Jesus. But how does the work of Jesus help people who are dead? How does all of this help people who are dead to him and who have no desire for Jesus? What would make a dead person grab onto God for rescue when that person doesn't want to be rescued? How could a dead person grab onto God for eternal rescue if that person is dead? Well, the answer in verses, uh, is in verses 4 to 5 here. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. Christian, when you were dead in your sins, you did not grab a hold of Jesus. Jesus grabbed a hold of you. You did not have the repentant breath in your lungs to call out to God to save you. And so God put his lips on your lips and breathed his breath of life into you. He resuscitated you. God gave you eternal life. God made you alive. R.C. Sproul said that God just doesn't throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea and pulls a corpse from the bottom of the sea, takes him up on the bank, breathes into him the breath of life, and makes him alive again. Even when we were dead toward God, even when we didn't want God, God was rich in mercy. God loved us even then with a great love. And so it was when we were dead in our trespasses that God made us alive together with Christ. God resurrected us from the dead in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Think about that. He resurrected us from the dead in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so this is why Paul says, by grace you have been saved 
See, God, grace is, is God's help and favor and kindness and love toward you, which you didn't deserve and did not earn and don't, and, and you have not merited. You, you have been saved not because of your goodness or because of your morality or because of your humanity or because of your intellect or because of your goodwill toward God. You've been saved by the grace of God. God was merciful to you, it says. And he loved you when you were in rebellion against him. And in kindness, he made you alive when you were dead. Wow, that's amazing. And this is why the apostle John wrote in John chapter 1. This is why he starts his gospel this way in verses 12 to 13. But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You were born not of the will, you were born of God and his grace. God called you to himself through the gospel. He, he, because you were dead, though, he made the gospel effectual for you, powerful for you. By the power of the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit worked in power and brought you to life from the dead. God transformed you and your disposition toward him. So that you no longer disliked God or didn't want God or were unthankful to God. But so that now you wanted God and needed God and wanted to follow God. He empowered you to see your need for Jesus and to say yes to Jesus. Yes, Jesus, I need you to save me and I want to follow you the rest of my life and for all eternity. This is why the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You've been born again of perishable seed, excuse me, of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. So because of his mercy and his love for you, Christian, God made you alive. He made you born again by the Spirit through the living and abiding gospel of God, which is on every page of Scripture. It all points us to Jesus. And God not only changed you, but He also changed your course. And He changed your destination no longer to the lake of fire, but to the throne of God in heaven. What, what awesome news. What great news. No matter what our circumstances are today, God has made us alive, Christians. He's raised us up already with Christ. He has now put us on the course to heaven. <laughs> so this week, keep your eyes on these truths. You know, it's fine to be concerned about the world around us. And it's good to want good for the world around us and to work 
for good for the world around us. But don't make the world around you your hope because it's going to let you down. That will devastate you if this world is your hope. Instead, set your mind on the things that are above, Paul says. Set your mind this week on these amazing truths in Jesus Christ that we've talked about today. Set your minds on Jesus this week and trust him. Trust him with your life. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your atonement for us, Jesus, and your, de your death and resurrection. I pray, Lord, that you would convict those who are dead, bring them to life through your word, by the power of your spirit, Lord. Change their disposition towards you. And God, for all of us, help us to continue to repent every day as we are tempted by Satan and the flesh and the world to go back to how we used to be. Give us strength, Lord, to keep trusting you, to keep turning to you, to fight the good fight by the power of the Spirit. Please protect us from Satan. Protect our country. Protect our churches. Help us, Lord, to live lives together that are worthy of your gospel. Thank you for making us alive and for the eternal life we have in you, Jesus. May praise and glory be to your name forever. Amen. Well, next week, I want to look more closely at verses 4 to 7 in this passage. And I, I want to talk more about our new birth in Christ. And I really hope you'll join us for that. And if there's someone in your life who you think would benefit from hearing today's message, I encourage you to share this message with them or, or maybe to share it on your Facebook page today. We want to get the gospel out. We want to get the good news out to people. I'd also ask you to please pray for our elders as, as we have prayer and conversations about how best to honor the name of Jesus regarding when and how to meet physically together again as a church family. We are very aware that there are a variety of, opinion, of opinions about this. And at this point, our primary concern is to protect the flock, our flock that God has made us overseers of, to protect them physically and to protect them spiritually, and also to act in a way worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we, we appreciate your prayers as, as, we, as we converse and pray about what God would have us do. Thank you. We love you. And uh, encourage other people today. Encourage them. We all need it. We pray this, or I pray this in Jesus' name for all of us. See ya.